Welcome back to Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer with you. I hope you're doing well this week as we begin another journey through another section of God's Word in the New Testament Scriptures. Uh, This week is, I believe, week 17, April 24th through April 30th. And we are looking at John chapter 13 through John chapter 17. Um, We are now kind of halfway through uh, John's Gospel and... um, launching into the second half, the major section of the book. Remember, the first uh, half of the book runs up through basically through chapter 12, and that's the book of signs, so-called. There's really seven major signs. The first one with the, um, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, and the last sign uh, culminating in the most dramatic one, which is the raising of Lazarus from the dead after being in the grave for four days. So that um, miracle really is what we are told in John's gospel that really drove the crowds uh, with this uh, triumphal entry into, into Jerusalem. And now Jesus knows his time has come. Um, we're here really on this, uh, the last night, this um, really, I guess you call it Thursday night, where Jesus now in John chapter 13 uh, knows his time is short and he's loving uh, these disciples. John opens up uh, his uh, John chapter 13 by saying, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So now here's Jesus laying down his life for his disciples, uh, pouring his life out for them and pouring his life into them. Um, and, and changing them and speaking to them uh, here. And so really, John chapter 13 through 17 is a section where uh, we have Jesus here um, washing the disciples' feet in John chapter 13 before talking about the betrayal that's coming and then the sending of the Spirit uh, that he talks about um, at the latter part of John chapter uh, 31, I believe. Does he talk about that? No, not yet in John chapter 13, but he does in 14. Promises um, the Holy Spirit uh, to come um, and uh, and does that. And then I was still looking at my Bible trying to see and make sure. Um, But so the washing of the feet, Jesus tells them, you know, let not your hearts be troubled. He comforts his disciples. He speaks about himself as the vine and they are the branches. And he also talks to his disciples about the coming of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, another comforter, another paraclete, another advocate who's going to come. And he's the, he, the Holy Spirit's job is to strengthen the disciples, just as Jesus during his ministry was there to give life to and strengthen the disciples. Well, he's going to go away, but he's going to send another one who's going to come to strengthen and uphold these disciples, and that is the person of God, the Holy Spirit. And so he speaks about what the Holy Spirit's ministry will do, um, and such in John chapter 16, he uh, calls them to love one another as he has loved them. Um, he is tell, reminding them that he has overcome the world. And then in John chapter 17, we read about his prayer in which he prays to God, the Father, 
for his people and um, and in light of all that is that is about ready to happen and come up on him uh, here in these last times. So uh, John here, right, he is, is writing so that we will believe and know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. And so all of these words, all these signs are leading us to believe in Jesus. And really these chapters are some of the richest material in the whole Bible, John 13 through 17, that you're going to read this week. Um, Very, very powerful instruction and and words that Jesus speaks to his disciples. And you think about it, what what would you want to say at your last uh, right before you knew you were going to die, what would you want to say to people who are very important to you? What words would you want to pass on to your children or to your friends or to your spouse? What would you want to say? And here we have Jesus's last words and actions right before he knows he's going to die and suffer. And this shows what is on his heart. It shows the kind of person he is. It shows who he is as the son of God. And it reveals to us a great, loving, and compassionate Savior who, even though he knows he's about ready to suffer, and he knows all that is coming um, soon, very soon, to him and and to overtake him um, as he lays down his life, and yet he is still concerned for the disciples and concerned to do the will of the Father and concerned that the Father um, would be honored and glorified Um, as he looks forward also to his own glorification through the cross and the resurrection. So that's kind of what's going on here in John chapter 13 through 17. And it's, again, I really encourage you to take your time and to read these words, maybe reread these chapters even, because um, what Jesus has to say um, is so profound. And also in some ways, John is deceptively simple. Because you read some of these words, right, and and you think Jesus, Jesus is uh, using very basic words sometimes, you know, like, I'm the vine, you're the branches, or um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But take some time to just meditate upon what those words mean, because actually upon further reflection, we realize um, there is a, like we said, a simplicity which allows us to grasp some of the basic message of what John's saying. But then upon further reflection, we realize, wow, there's actually more there than at first maybe meets the eye. And actually, the more you read the Gospel of John and John's style of writing, you realize um, there's much more there in very simple words. But he is saying some very powerful things. Um, kind of like at the very beginning of his gospel, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you realize later on, wow, there's actually much, much hidden in there that's that's deep. So let's let's read and think about some of the things that we can learn here in these uh, these this powerful section of Scripture. The first thing I want to t- talk about is uh, Jesus washing the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. Jesus does this very odd thing. Uh, to us, at least, maybe he he gets that down and and uh, puts on the clothes of a servant and washes the feet of his uh, disciples. And so this is from John chapter thirteen. This is about the first five verses, and this is from J.C. Ryle. Yeah, he writes this. The passage we have now read begins one of the most interesting portions of John's gospel. For five consecutive chapters, we find the evangelist recording matters which are not mentioned by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We can never be thankful enough that the Holy Spirit has caused them to be written for our learning. 
In every age, the contents of these chapters have been justly regarded as one of the most precious parts of the Bible. They have been the food and drink, the strength and comfort of all true-hearted Christians. Let us ever approach them with peculiar reverence. The place whereon we stand is holy ground. We learn for one thing from these verses what patient and continuing love there is in Christ's heart towards his people. It is written that, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Knowing perfectly well that they were about to forsake him shamefully in a very few hours, in full view of their approaching display of weakness and infirmity, our blessed master did not cease to have loving thoughts of his disciples. He was not weary of them. He loved them to the last. The love of Christ to sinners is the very essence and marrow of the gospel. That he should love us at all and care for our souls, that he should love us before we love him or even know anything about him, that he should love us so much as to come into the world to save us, take our nature on him, bear our sins, and die for us on the cross. All this is wonderful indeed. It is a kind of love to which there is nothing like it among men. The narrow selfishness of human nature cannot fully comprehend it. It is one of those things which even the angels of God desire to look into. It is a truth which Christian parents and teachers should proclaim incessantly and never be weary of proclaiming. But the love of Christ to saints is no less wonderful in its way than his love to sinners, though far less considered. That he should bear with all their countless infirmities from grace to glory, that he should never be tired of their endless inconsistencies and petty provocations, that he should go on forgiving and forgetting incessantly and never be provoked to cast them off and give them up. All this is marvelous indeed. No mother watching over the waywardness of her feeble babe in the days of its infancy has her patience so thoroughly tried as the patience of Christ is tried by Christians. Yet his patience is infinite. His compassions are a well that is never exhausted. His love is a love that passes knowledge. Let no man be afraid of beginning with Christ if he desires to be saved. The chief of sinners may come to him with boldness and trust him for pardon with confidence. This loving Savior is one who delights to receive sinners. Luke 15 verse 2. Let no man be afraid of going on with Christ after he has once come to him and believed. Let him not fancy that Christ will cast him off because of failures and dismiss him into his former hopelessness on account of infirmities. Such thoughts are entirely unwarranted by anything in the scriptures. Jesus will never reject any servant because of feeble service and weak performance. Those whom he receives, he always keeps. Those whom he loves at first, he loves at last. His promise shall never be broken, and it is for saints as well as sinners. Him that comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. John 6, verse 37. That is a great opening section, really a commentary in many ways right up on that, that first verse there that he loved his own to the end. Jesus never loses his people. Uh, this is something we must uh, proclaim, and this is one of the, the great distinctives of our Baptist tradition as far as doctrine, that we, along with other uh, Christians like the Reformed and the Presbyterians, um, the great ref- the Reformed tradition, in which, which our Baptists come out of, we believe that once somebody is a tr- has believed in Jesus— 
and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you have been born again. You can never fall away completely. You will be preserved by God to the end. All that the Father gives him come to him, and whoever comes to Jesus, he will never cast out, and no one can pluck them from the Father's hand. So we believe that Jesus' love is an infallible love. It will never, ever fail or err. It is an invincible love. He loves us to the end. He never wearies of us. He never tires of us. He never casts us off. He never regrets saving us and laying down his life for us. He knew who we were before. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ laid down his life for the ungodly, not for the godly, but for the ungodly. While we were weak at the right, at the right time, Christ died for us. So Jesus is patient and continuing love towards all sinners. He offers himself to all sinners, but he has a special love, a special redeeming love towards his own people. He describes these people as those whom the Father has given to him, as the sheep that he lays down his life for, um, as those who come to him and who have been taught by the Father. All of those, those, that, those, those people, those who have been born again, those who receive him and, and have been called to be children of God, the special group there, uh, those who are true believers will never, ever fall away. Now, as we do learn later on here, Jesus also washes Judas's feet. And this is the next point that J.C. Rowell brings up. I'm not going to read it, but um, his next point is what deep corruption may sometimes be found in the heart of a great professor of religion. Because we see here Judas, right? The devil's already come into Judas's heart. And Judas was never a true believer. He hung around true believers. He looked like them. Um, and uh, to our eyes, Judas would have looked like a very good man. But in reality, in his heart, he was never, ever born again. He had never uh, trusted in Jesus Christ. He had never been taught by the Father and therefore had never savingly come to Jesus Christ. And so we, it's a good warning to us on the other hand, right, isn't it, that we need to make sure that we're called every now and then, right, to examine ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith, because it is possible to be a hypocrite. It is a possibility to look like a Christian, to look like a believer, to do all the right things, and yet to not really have a saving union with Jesus Christ. Okay, so we've talked about Jesus' love, which never gives up on us, uh, to, his, to his people. Next, I want to talk about here from uh, J.C. Rowell again, about how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is found in John chapter uh, 14. Uh, okay, so he says this, we should mark in these verses, and I believe he's talking here, yeah, um, John chapter 14, verses 4 through uh, 11. Uh, um, yeah. So he says here, we should mark in these verses how much better Jesus speaks of believers than they speak of themselves. He says to his disciples, you know where I go and you know the way. And yet Thomas at once breaks in with the remark, we know neither the way where nor the way. 
The apparent contradiction demands explanation. It is more seeming than real. Certainly, in one point of view, the knowledge of the disciples was very small. They knew little before the crucifixion and resurrection compared to what they might have known, and little compared to what they afterwards knew after the day of Pentecost. About our Lord's purpose in coming into the world, about his sacrificial death and substitution for us on the cross, their ignorance was glaring and great. It might well be said that they knew in part only, and were children in understanding. And yet, in another point of view, the knowledge of the disciples was very great. They knew far more than the great majority of the Jewish nation, and and received truths which the scribes and Pharisees entirely rejected. Compared to the world around them, they were in the highest sense enlightened. They knew and believed that their master was the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God, and to know him was the first step towards heaven. All things go by comparison. Before we lightly esteem the disciples because of their ignorance, let us take care that we do not underrate their knowledge. They knew more precious truth than they were aware of themselves. Their hearts were better than their heads. The plain truth is that all believers are apt to undervalue the work of the Spirit in their own souls, and to fancy they know nothing because they do not know everything. Many true Christians are thought more of in heaven while they live than they think of themselves, and will find it out to their surprise at the last day. There is one above who takes far more account of heart knowledge than head knowledge. Many go mourning all the way to heaven because they know so little and fancy they will miss the way altogether, and yet have hearts with which God is well pleased. We should mark secondly in these verses what glorious names the Lord Jesus gives himself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The fullness of these precious words can probably never be taken in by man. He that attempts to unfold them does little more than scratch the surface of a rich soil. Christ is the way the way to heaven and peace with God. He is not only the guide and teacher and lawgiver like Moses. He is himself the door, the ladder, and the road through whom we must draw near to God. He has opened the way to the tree of life, which was closed when Adam and Eve fell by the satisfaction he made for us on the cross. Through his blood, we may draw near with boldness and have access with confidence into God's truth. Christ, excuse me, have confidence into God's presence, excuse me. Christ is, secondly here though, the truth, the whole substance of true religion which the mind of man requires. Without him, the wisest heathen groped in gross darkness and knew nothing about God. Before he came, even the Jews saw through a glass darkly and discerned nothing distinctly under the types, figures, and ceremonies of the Mosaic law. Christ is the whole truth and meets and satisfies every desire of the human mind. Christ is the life, the sinner's title to eternal life and pardon, the believer's root of spiritual life and holiness, the surety of the Christian's resurrection life. He that believes on Christ has everlasting life. He that abides in him, as the branch abides in the vine, shall bring forth much fruit. He that believes on him, though he were dead, yet shall he live. The root of all life, for soul and for body, is Christ. Forever, let us grasp and hold fast these words. To use Christ daily as the way, 
to believe Christ daily as the truth, to live on Christ daily as the life. This is to be a well-informed, a thoroughly furnished, and an established Christian. We should mark thirdly in these verses how expressly the Lord Jesus shuts out all ways of salvation but himself. No man, he declares, no man comes unto the Father but by me. It avails nothing that a man is clever, learned, highly gifted, amiable, charitable, kind-hearted, and zealous about some sort of religion. All this will not save his soul if he does not draw near to God by Christ's atonement and make use of God's own Son as his mediator and Savior. God is so holy that all men are guilty and debtors in his sight. Sin is so sinful that no mortal man can make satisfaction for it. There must be a mediator, a ransom payer, a redeemer between ourselves and God, or else we can never be saved. There is only one door, one bridge, one ladder between earth and heaven, the crucified Son of God. Whoever will enter in by that door may be saved, but to him who refuses to use that door, the Bible holds out no hope at all. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Let us beware, if we love life, of supposing that mere earnestness will take a man to heaven. Though he knows nothing of Christ, the idea is a deadly and ruinous error. Sincerity will never wipe away our sins. It is not true that every man will be saved by his own religion, no matter what he believes, so long as he is diligent and sincere. We must not pretend to be wiser than God. Christ has said, and Christ will stand to it, No man comes unto the Father but by me. Uh, lastly, let's look at this. These are some, uh, there's, this is a great section here that Ryle writes here. We should mark lastly in these verses how close and mysterious is the union of God the Father and God the Son. Four times over, this mighty truth is put before us in words that cannot be mistaken. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. He that has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father in me. The Father that dwells in me, he does the works. Sayings like these are full of deep mystery. We have no eyes to see their meaning fully, no line to fathom it, no language to express it, no mind to take it in. We must be content to believe when we cannot explain and to admire and revere when we cannot interpret. Let it suffice us to know and hold that the Father is God and the Son is God, and yet that they are one in essence, though two distinct persons, ineffably one, and yet ineffably distinct. These are high things, and we cannot attain to a full comprehension of them. Let us, however, take comfort in the simple truth that Christ is very God, of very God, equal with the Father in all things, and one with him. He who loved us and shed his blood for us on the cross and bids us trust him for pardon is no mere man like ourselves. He is God over all, blessed forever, and able to save to the uttermost the chief of sinners. Though our sins be as scarlet, he can make them white as snow. He that casts his soul on Christ has an almighty friend, a friend who is one with the Father and very God. 
Those are some great words right there, uh, especially the closing there. You know, uh, Jesus does say, I and the Father are one. He said that earlier, I think, in John chapter 10. Um, here he, he continues to say, right, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this is very important because there are people out there who claim that they are Christians, but there's a, you know, there's um, there's a, a heresy in, in which they say basically that, that what this means is that, see, God the Father became God the Son, and then he became the Holy Spirit. That could be called like modalism. So there's only really one God, but he only exists in different modes. Sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he was the Son, and sometimes he's the Spirit. We don't believe that. That is a heresy. That is, that is an unchristian, non-Christian, anti-Christian thing to say if we actually believe it that way. The church for 2,000 years has affirmed that Jesus Christ is one with God the Father in essence, but distinct in his person. This is why we sing that hymn, um, Holy, 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 the tail end, right? God in three persons, so one God in three persons. Those three persons, distinct persons, are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There have always been three persons, and there always will be, and there is three persons at all time. This is who God is. He is one being in three persons. Now, we cannot lodge, it's hard for us to grasp this, um, what this, what this means, but we do believe there is one divine nature, one example of divinity, one example of, of godness, but that one example of godness is co-shared by three equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, this is really get, diving us into the doctrine of the Trinity, but it's, it's so comforting for us to know that Jesus Christ is not less than the Father, right? There was another early heresy that said Jesus Christ was the first created being that God the Father made. And men like Athanasius, who was an early church father, right, had to oppose this and defend the fact that, no, whenever God calls Jesus the Son of God, whenever Jesus is called the Son of God, that doesn't actually put him underneath the Father. That actually is highlighting his equality with the Father. And that's what you read in John chapter 5. Remember when Jesus says, my Father is working and I must work now, the Jews understood Jesus to not be saying that he was less than God, but they actually were ready to, um, they, were, they were very frustrated and angry and wanting to kill him because he set, made himself equal with God, calling God his own father, saying that he, was, he and God the Father were on the same level in, uh, in divinity, in their nature. And that's what the Christian churches believed. It is a, maybe it's a scandalous claim to people, but that is what we believe. That's why we sing those songs, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Um, and, and, and if you notice some hymns, you'll notice um, uh, certain hymns will praise one of the, each of the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this is kind of, uh, these verses right here are kind of, are some of the, the ground zero for us to kind of grasp what this truth means, right? Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. Um, notice, by the way, Jesus isn't saying, I am the Father, and he doesn't say the Father is me. 
He does say, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, but he doesn't say that I am the Father, and the Father is me. There's this communion. They share the same divine nature while being distinct persons. Um, and we, we, you can talk about that and look up um, more. Um, might read an early church creed like the Nicene Creed, which can be helpful to give us some language and some ideas but what exactly this means. The church had to wrestle with this because it's it's a very difficult thing to talk about. Um, but the early church, it's interesting, this was the, one of the first things they really hammered out was, who is Jesus? What is his relationship to God? And what is his relationship to man? And so the early church uh, crafted and hammered out some great statements found in um the Nicene Creed, in the Athanasian Creed, and in the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, There's three early church documents. You can look them up online if you're interested. But the early Christians in the first few hundred years were really trying to hammer out this truth, and they came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is one person who shares a divine, who is true God, very God, and yet also true man, very man. He is both two natures, his divinity and his humanity, in one person, the Son of God, Christ. Okay, so that's that's our Savior. He is an almighty friend, as J.C. Ryle points out. He is our, our Savior, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, um, next I want to talk now about here, though, about not only about, he talks about the union between God the Father and God the Son, but let's reflect quickly here upon John chapter 15, where Jesus talks about the vine, I am the vine, you are the branches. And I want to talk here what what J.C. Ryle points out, which is the union between Christ and believers. He talks about this. Um, So let's read here. He says, we are meant to learn first from these verses, John chapter 15, 1 through 6, that the union between Christ and believers is very close. He is the vine, and they are the branches. The union between the branch of a vine and the main stem is the closest that can be conceived. It is the whole secret of the branch's life, strength, vigor, beauty, and fertility. Separate from the parent stem, it has no life of its own. The sap and juice that flow from the stem are the origin and maintaining power of all its leaves, buds, blossoms, and fruit. Cut off from the stem, it must soon wither and die. The union between Christ and believers is just as close and just as real. In themselves, believers have no life or strength or spiritual power. All that they have of vital religion comes from Christ. They are what they are and feel what they feel and do what they do because they draw out of Jesus a continual supply of grace, help, and ability. Joined to the Lord by faith and united in mysterious union with him by the Spirit, they stand and walk and continue and run the Christian race. But every jot of good about them is drawn from their spiritual head, Jesus Christ. The thought before us is both comfortable and instructive. Believers have no cause to despair of their own salvation and to think they will never reach heaven. Let them consider that they are not left to themselves in their own strength. Their root is Christ, 
and all that there is in the root is for the benefit of the branches. Because he lives, they shall live also. Worldly people have no cause to wonder at the continuance and perseverance of believers. Weak as they are in themselves, their root is in heaven and never dies. When I am weak, said Paul, then I am strong. And that's a great opening way to think about this understanding that uh, between the vine and the branches, we draw all of our strength from Christ. Christ here is, is pointing his disciples back at himself and calling them to abide in him, to look to him for everything. And the question is, do we do that? Do we do, do, we do that individually? Are we looking to Christ um, and to draw all of our spiritual strength, everything. Remember, John the Baptist said, a man cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above. John chapter 3, I believe. And so, similarly, we cannot do or, or accomplish or receive anything unless we receive it from Christ himself. We must be connected to him and united to him and and draw from him spiritual life and forgiveness and strength and salvation. Do we do this as a church? Um, this is why our pastor preaches to us Christ. This is why all of us um, as a church, we are pointing each other to Jesus because it's from him that we draw our spiritual strength as a body of Christ, as the vine and the branches. So, uh, Ryle continues on here. I'm not going to read all these things, but he talks about how uh, this is a great example because there are false Christians as well as true ones. There are some he talks about who appear to be part of the vine, but they're cut off. Um, similarly, he talks about the fruits of the Spirit are the only satisfactory evidence of a man being a true Christian because as we abide in Christ, he, we abide in him to, to bear fruit and to grow in grace. And also he talks about how God will often increase the holiness of true Christians by his providential dealings with them. Because remember, God prunes us and it can hurt sometimes, doesn't it? We go through trials and afflictions, but actually all of the suffering in our life is pruning and meant to lead to more fruit. Um, and, and it would be helpful if you and I uh, remi- reminded ourselves of that. Um, and uh, remembered that God the Father is working with us the same way that he did with his son, uh, the capital S son, the natural son, who uh, learned obedience by what he suffered. And look at the fruit that came from Jesus' suffering. Well, similarly, he is letting us suffer, but think about the great fruit that will come from us being pruned uh, and suffering as well. Okay, now I want to talk with you about the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit occupies a big section here in these chapters. And I want to talk about it from um, Spurgeon's sermon, a Spurgeon sermon by Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in the 1800s, uh, preached in London. And this is from a sermon called, this is called the Holy Spirit's chief office. It's from John chapter 16, verses uh, 14 through 15. Uh, Jesus says this, about the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here he's talking about the Holy Spirit's chief office, his main purpose, uh, his main role in what he comes to do. So this is Spurgeon opening up. 
It is the chief office of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ. He does many things, but this is what he aims at in all of them, to glorify Christ. Brothers and sisters, what the Holy Spirit does must be right for us to imitate. Therefore, let us endeavor to glorify Christ. To what higher ends can we devote ourselves than to something to which God the Holy Spirit devotes himself? Be this then your continual prayer. Blessed Spirit, help me to always glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Observe that the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ by showing to us the things of Christ. It is a great marvel that there should be any glory given to Christ by showing him to such poor creatures as we are. What? To make us see Christ? Does that glorify him? For our weak eyes to behold him? For our trembling hearts to know and to love him? Does this glorify him? It is even so, for the Holy Spirit chooses this as his principal way of glorifying the Lord Jesus. He takes of the things of Christ, not to show them to angels, not to write them in, the, in letters of fire across the brow of night, but to show them to us. Within the little temple of a sanctified heart, Christ is praised, not so much by what we do or think as by what we see. This puts great value upon meditation, upon the study of God's word, and upon silent thought under the teaching of the Holy Spirit. For Jesus says, He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall show it to you. So he's got three big points here. Um, So he talks about the Holy Spirit is our Lord's uh, glorifier. Uh, Secondly, Christ's own things are his best glory. And then uh, lastly, uh, Christ's glory is his Father's glory. So um, this was a great sermon. I really liked it. And this is helpful as we uh, think about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So first of all, the Holy Spirit is our Lord's glorifier. He says this, I want you to keep this truth of God in your mind and never to forget it. That which does not glorify Christ is not of the Holy Spirit. And that which is of the Holy Spirit invariably glorifies our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we're to have an eye to this truth in all comforts. That's the, so we need to, the, the, this truth needs to be in our mind uh, in all comforts. He says this, always look with great suspicion upon any comfort offered to you either as a sinner or as a saint, which does not come distinctly from Christ. Say, I will not be comforted till Jesus comforts me. I will refuse to lay aside my despondency until he removes my sin. I will not go to Mr. Civility or Mr. Legality for the unloading of my burden. No hands shall ever lift the load of conscious sin from off my heart, but those that were nailed to the cross when Jesus himself bore my sins in his own body on the tree. Please carry this truth of God with you wherever you go as a kind of spiritual litmus paper by which you may test everything that is presented to you as a cordial or a comfort. If it does not glorify Christ, let it not console or please you. Secondly, the fact that the Holy Spirit is our Lord's glorifier, we need to have this eye, uh, an eye to this truth of God in all ministries, in all ministries. He says this, there are many ministries in the world and they are very diverse from one another, but this truth will enable you to judge which is right out of them all. That ministry, which makes much of Christ is of the Holy Spirit. 
But that ministry which decries him, ignores him, or puts him in the background in any degree is not of the Spirit of God. Any doctrine which magnifies man but not man's Redeemer, any doctrine which denies the depth of the fall and consequently derogates from the greatness of salvation, any doctrine which makes sin less and therefore makes Christ's work less, away with it, away with it. This shall be your infallible test as to whether it is of the Holy Spirit or not. For Jesus says, He shall glorify me. It were better to speak five words to the glory of Christ than to be the greatest greatest orator who ever lived and to neglect or dishonor the Lord Jesus Christ. All ministries, therefore, must be subjected to this test. If they do not glorify Christ, they are not of the Holy Spirit. And that right there, quickly, Spurgeon, that, that point there, again, is such an important thing, right? As you think about why do you come to the church that you go to? How do you choose? I mean, this is a question you just have to ask yourself. Why do I go to MMBC? Why do I go there? Or why do I go to a different church? And, and if we say, well, the Holy Spirit's there. Well, the question is, is how do I know the Holy Spirit's there? And Spurgeon's telling us, does it glorify Christ? Because the Holy Spirit, you know what he does? He raises up Jesus and shows Jesus in all of his splendor. If Jesus is at the front, we know the Holy Spirit is there holding him up and presenting him and present. But if Jesus is not being glorified, if Jesus is not being magnified, well, then we have a pretty good instance here. Spurgeon says, if they do not glorify Christ, they are not of the Holy Spirit. So in our church life, we want to exalt Jesus, Jesus Christ in his saving office to us every Lord's Day. That is, that is what we do. That is what it is to be the church, to exalt him in his life, in his death, and the example that it is to us as well. If we're believers, right, if we've already trusted his salvation, Jesus's life and example is now uh, the, the guide to us as we live in him. But we need to see this and raise up Christ. Thirdly, he says about the fact that the Holy Spirit is our Lord's glorifier. We need to have an eye to this truth in all religious movements and judge them by this standard. Spurgeon says this, If they are of the Holy Spirit, they glorify Christ. There are great movements in the world every now and then, and we are inclined to look upon them hopefully, for any stir is better than stagnation. But by and by we begin to fear with a holy jealousy what their effects will be. How shall we judge them? To what test shall we put them? Always to this test. Does this movement glorify Christ? Is Christ preached? Then therein I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Are men pointed to Christ? Then this is the ministry of salvation. Is he preached as first and last? Are men bid to be justified by faith in him, and then to follow him and copy his divine example? It is well. I do not believe that any man ever lifted up the cross of Christ in a hurtful way. If it is but the cross that is seen, it is the sight of the cross, not of the hands that lift it, that will bring salvation. Where he is lifted up, there is all that is needed for the salvation of a guilty race. Judge every movement then, not by those who adhere to it, nor by those who admire and praise it, but by this word of our Lord. He shall glorify me. The Spirit of God is not in it if it does not glorify Christ. 
Fourthly, we need to have an eye on this truth when you are under a great sense of weakness, a sense of great weakness. And I think here he's especially talking to preachers and, and people engaged in Sunday school teaching or whatever, um, but, but you'll, you can apply this to your life too. He says, you have finished preaching a sermon, you have completed a round with your tracks, or you have ended your Sunday school work for another Sabbath. You say to yourselves, I fear that I have done very poorly. You groan as you go to your bed because you think that you have not glorified Christ. It is as well that you should groan if that is the case. I will not forbid it, but I will relieve the bitterness of your distress by reminding you that it is the Holy Spirit who is to glorify Christ. He shall glorify me. If I preach and the Holy Spirit is with me, Christ will be glorified. But if I were able to speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but without the power of the Holy Spirit... Christ would not be glorified. Sometimes our weakness may even help to make way for the greater display of the might of God. If so, we may glory in infirmity, that the power of Christ may rest upon us. It is not merely we who speak, but the Spirit of the Lord who speaks by us. May the Holy Spirit come at this moment and come at all times whenever his servants are trying to glorify Christ and do himself what must always be his own work. How can you and I glorify anybody, much less glorify him who is infinitely glorious? But the Holy Spirit, being himself the glorious God, can glorify the glorious Christ. It is a work worthy of God, and it shows us when we think of it the absolute need of our crying to the Holy Spirit that he would take us in his hands and use us as a workman uses his hammer. What can a hammer do without the hand that grasps it? And what can we do? without the Spirit of God. That's a very convicting passage, isn't it? What can we do as a church or any of us individually and if we're pastors in our preaching or if we are teachers in our teaching, if we're parents in our parenting and our training our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Um, what can we do in our sharing of the gospel with our friends at work or with our family members? Or what can we do as a congregation here in Christ? We can do nothing without the Holy Spirit, because we can't glorify Christ without the Holy Spirit. As he says, uh, it takes uh, the glorious God to glorify the glorious Christ. So we need the Holy Spirit because he is God. We need him. And his role in our church's life is not to draw attention to himself, but he draws attention to his work and his person when he draws attention to Jesus. Um, that's what he does. And so, similarly, as Spurgeon said, what can a hammer do without the hand that grasps it? And what can we do without the Spirit of God? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. We need him. We need him in our church and in our lives. Uh, lastly, underneath this first main point, he says, we need to have an eye to the truth of God amidst all oppositions controversies and contentions to this truth that the Holy Spirit has come to glorify Christ. He says this, if we alone had the task of glorifying Christ, we might be beaten. But as the Holy Spirit is the glorifier of Christ, his glory is in very safe hands. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The Holy Spirit is still to the front the eternal purpose of God to set his king upon the throne and to make Jesus Christ reign forever and ever must be fulfilled. 
for the Holy Spirit has undertaken to see it accomplished. Amidst the surging tumults of the battle, the result of the conflict is never in doubt for a moment. So secondly, underneath this major thing here, right? So the first thing is Christ's, uh, the Holy Spirit has come to glorify Christ. Secondly, Christ's own things are his, the Holy Spirit's uh, best glory. Or maybe it's Christ's own glory. Anyway, you can see it. Christ's own things are his best glory. He says this, when the Holy Spirit wants to glorify Christ, what does he do? He does not go abroad for anything. He comes to Christ himself for that which will be for Christ's own glory. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall show it to you. There can be no glory added to Christ. It must be his own glory which he has already, which is made more apparent to the hearts of God's chosen by the Holy Spirit. First of all, he says this, Christ needs no inventions to glorify him. We have struck out a new line of things, says one. Have you? We have discovered something very wonderful. I dare say you have, but Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, needs none of your inventions or discoveries or additions to his truth. A plain Christ is always the loveliest Christ. Dress him up and you have deformed him and defamed him. Bring him out just as he is, the Christ of God. Nothing else but Christ, unless you bring in his cross, for we preach Christ crucified. Indeed, you cannot have the Christ without the cross, but preach Christ crucified, and you have given him all the glory that he wants. The Holy Spirit does not reveal in these last times any fresh ordinances or any novel doctrines or any new evolutions. He simply brings to mind the things which Christ himself spoke. He brings Christ's own things to us, and in that what in that way glorifies him. I guess that's way glorifies him. Think for a minute of Christ's person as revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. What can more glorify him than for us to see his person, the very God of very God and yet as truly man? What a wondrous being, as human as ourselves, but as divine as God. Was there ever another like he? Never. Think of his incarnation his birth at Bethlehem. There was greater glory among the oxen in the stall than ever was seen where those born in, where those born in marble halls were swathed in purple and fine linen. Was there ever another baby like Christ? Never. I wonder not that the wise men fell down to worship him. Look at his life, the standing wonder of all ages. Men who have not worshipped him have admired him. His life is incomparable, unique, There is nothing like it in all the history of mankind. Imagination has never been able to invent anything approximating to the perfect beauty of the life of Jesus Christ. Think of his death. There have been many heroic and martyr deaths, but there is not one that can be set side by side with Christ's death. He did not pay the debt of nature as others do, and yet he paid our nature's debt. He did not die because he must. He died because he would. The only must that came upon him was a necessity of all-conquering love. The cross of Christ is the greatest wonder of fact or of fiction. Fiction invents many marvelous things, but nothing that can be looked at for a moment in comparison with the cross of Christ. Think of our Lord's resurrection. If this is one of the things that are taken and shown to you by the Holy Spirit, it will fill you with holy delight. 
I am sure that I could go into that sepulcher where John and Peter went and spend a lifetime in reverencing him who broke down the barriers of the tomb and made it a passageway to heaven. Instead of being a dungeon and a cul-de-sac into which all men seemed to go, but none could ever come out, Christ has, by his resurrection, made a tunnel right through the grave. Jesus, by dying, has killed death for all believers. Then think of his ascension. But why need I take you over all these scenes with which you are blessed, blessedly familiar? What a wondrous fact that when the cloud received him out of the disciples' sight, the angels came to convoy him to his heavenly throne, home. They brought his chariot from above to bear him to his throne, clapped their triumphant wings and cried, The glorious work is done. Think of him now at his father's right hand adored of all the heavenly host, and then let your mind fly forward to the glory of his second advent, the final judgment with its terrible terrors, the millennium with its indescribable bliss and the heaven of heavens with its endless and unparalleled splendor. If these things are shown to you by the Holy Spirit, the beatific visions will indeed glorify Christ, and you will sit down and sing with the blessed virgin, my soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Thus you see that the things which glorify Christ are all in Christ. The Holy Spirit fetches nothing from abroad, but he takes of the things of Christ and shows them to us. The glory of kings lies in their silver and their gold, their silk and their gems, but the glory of Christ lies in himself. If we want to glorify a man, we bring him presence. If we wish to glorify Christ, we must accept presence from him. Thus we take the cup of salvation, calling upon the name of the Lord, and in so doing, we glorify Christ. That's a great little concluding section right there of this first part right here, right? I mean, if we wish to glorify Christ, we must accept presence from him. The Christian faith is first and foremost about receiving, not about doing. It's about what God does for us more so than what we do for him. Now we must, we do have, we do want to, to, to honor him with our lives and uh, we do want to serve him. But the primary thing, the first thing that happens is if we want to glorify Christ, we will first of all, believingly receive all that he is for us and, and look into him and see him. This is why I noticed, by the way, he talks about his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and now his session sitting at the right hand of God the Father. That is, that is all our preaching is, isn't it? And if we preach that, if we teach that, if our lives are centered upon that as Christians, we find ourselves talking about everything, don't we? God the Father who sent this Son, the Holy Spirit who empowered this Christ and who's revealing this Christ to us, the Son of God himself who's at the center there, who did all of this for us. So we find ourselves enthralled with the triune God, worshiping him, trusting him, living for him, wanting our lives to be pleasing to him because we have been given everything. Everything is ours in Christ Jesus. Okay, so he talks... Um, so he talks about how we don't need new inventions. So important because in our day and age, just like every other day and age, there's always somebody coming along and trying to say, but yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but here's this really cool new thing that we can do here, or here's this other thing that the church can do, or we need to be involved in in politics or social justice or uh, this cause or that cause or look at this aspect of the Bible or whatever. But the problem is that if we move off-center from Jesus Christ crucified, we uh, the Holy Spirit delights to do that. We don't need new inventions. The Bible clearly teaches us that the whole of Scripture is drenched in the blood of Christ, and it proclaims to us Him, and that's what we want to do, and the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ by simply proclaiming Christ Himself. So how does the Holy Spirit do this? Well, it says uh, these things are too bright for us uh, to see till the Holy Spirit shows them to us. We can't see these things about Jesus till the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes to them. So he enlightens our understanding, Spurgeon says. He works upon the whole soul. He prepares us to see him. He also talks about how uh, Christ, how the Holy Spirit vivifies the truth of God. Yeah, he makes it alive to us. And Spurgeon says this uh, about this part. He says, I do not know whether I can quite tell you what I mean, but I have sometimes seen a truth of God differently from what I have ever seen it before. I knew it long ago. I acknowledged it as part of the divine revelation, but now I realize it, grip it, grasp it, or what is better, it seems to get a grip of me and hold me in its mighty hands. Have you not sometimes been overjoyed with a promise which never seemed anything to you before? The Holy Spirit has a way of focusing the light of God, and when it falls in this special way upon a certain point, then the truth is revealed to us. He shall take of the things of Christ and show them to you. Have you ever felt ready to jump for joy, ready to jump from your seat, ready to sit up in your bed at night and sing praises to God through the overpowering influence of some grand old truth which has seemed to be at once quite new to you? The Holy Spirit also shows to us the things of Christ in our experience. As we journey on in life, we pass up hill and down dale through bright sunlight and through dark shadows. And in each of these conditions, we learn a little more of Christ a little more of his grace, a little more of his glory, a little more of his sin-bearing, a little more of his glorious righteousness. Blessed is the life which is just one long lesson upon the glory of Christ. So, we, we need the Holy Spirit in our lives, don't we? He comes and takes the things of Christ and opens up our minds because we can't see who Jesus is apart from him. Lastly, under the last section here, um, he says this, Christ's glory is his Father's glory. First of all, he says, Christ has all that the Father has. He says this, think of that. No mere man dares to say, all things that the Father has are mine. All the Godhead is in Christ. Not only all the attributes of it, but the essence of it. The Nicene Creed well puts it, and it is not too strong in the expression, light of light, very God of very God. For Christ has all that the Father has. When we come to Christ, we come to omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscience. We come to almighty immutability. We come, in fact, to the eternal Godhead. The Father has all things, and all power is given to Christ in heaven and on earth, so that he has all that the Father has. Secondly, he says the Father is glorified in Christ's glory. He says, think of that. Uh, oh, no, I guess I just read that, didn't I? I need to skip down here a little bit. <clears throat> he says this, um, 
Never let us fall into the false notion that if we magnify Christ, we are deprecating the Father. If any lips have ever spoken concerning the Christ of God as to deprecate the God of Christ, let those lips be covered with shame. We never preached Christ as merciful and the Father as only just, or Christ as moving the Father to be gracious. That is a slander which has been cast upon us, but there is not an atom of truth in it. We have known and believed what Christ himself said. I and my Father are one. The more glorious Christ is, the more glorious the Father is. And when men, professedly Christians, begin to cast off Christ, they cast off God the Father to a large extent. Irreverence to the Son of God soon becomes irreverence to God the Father himself. But dear friends, we delight to honor Christ, and we will continue to do so. Even when we stand in the heaven of heavens, before the burning throne of the infinite Jehovah, we will sing praises unto him and unto the Lamb, putting the two evermore in that divine conjunction in which they are always to be found. Thus you see, Christ has all that the Father has, and when he is glorified, the Father also is glorified. Um, Lastly, he concludes here with this. The Holy Spirit must lead us to see all this. If we give ourselves up to his teaching, we shall fall into no errors. It will be a great mystery, but we shall know enough so that it will never trouble us. If you sit down and try to study the the mystery of the eternal, well, I believe that the longer you look, the more you will be like persons who looked into the sea from a great height until they grow dizzy and are ready to fall and be drowned. Believe what the Spirit teaches you and adore your divine teacher. Then shall his instruction become easy to you. I believe that as we grow older, we come to worship God as Abraham did, as Jehovah, the great I am. Jesus does not fade into the background, but the glorious Godhead seems to become more and more apparent to us. Our Lord's word to his disciples, you believe in me, believe also, you, excuse me, you believe in God, believe also in me, as we grow older, seems to turn into this, you believe in me, believe also in God. And as we come to a full confidence in the glorious Lord, the God of nature and of providence and of redemption and of heaven, the Holy Spirit gives us to know more of the glories of Christ. An old lady, of whom I have heard, made a mistake in what she said, yet there was a truth behind her blunder. She had been to a little Baptist chapel where a high Calvinist preached on, preached and coming on coming away, she said that she liked high Calvary preachers best. So do I. Give me a high Calvary preacher, one who will make Calvary the highest of all the mountains. I suppose it was not a hill at all, but only a mound. Still, let us lift it higher and higher, and say to all other hills, Why leap you, you high hills? This is the hill which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The crucified Christ is wiser than all the wisdom of the world. The cross of Christ has more novelty in it than all the fresh things of the earth. O believers and preachers of the gospel, glorify Christ. May the Holy Spirit help you to do so. So that's where we're going to stop today. We didn't do John chapter 17 today. We didn't uh, give anything from there, but I know that you'll be blessed as you read it. I hope this Spurgeon sermon was helpful to you. Um, I know we went a little long here today as well, um, but... Just a lot of good stuff. Um, Next week, we'll begin reading uh, John chapter 18, 19, 20, 21, and I guess going into uh, Acts uh, chapter 1 as well. 
So keep reading the Bible. I hope it's encouraging to you. Uh, grow in the grace and the knowledge and the love for Jesus Christ and for all the saints. And may our lives conform to his divine example. Thanks for listening to this. Take care. God bless. Yeah.